Ephesus was a church that was strong on doctrine, but they lacked love. What does it mean to leave your first love? And what implications does that have for our modern church and for our own lives? We'll talk about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation by going over Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven letters to seven churches. These are seven epistles that were written, or rather dictated, by Jesus to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And in the last episode, I did an introduction to these seven churches, what they are all about, and how we're going to study these letters. So let's just dive right in with the first letter to the church at Ephesus. And we'll just read the passage from Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so before we break these uh, this passage down, let's just look at the historical city of Ephesus and the church at Ephesus. Ephesus um, was again a church in a, excuse me a city in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. At the time, it was called Asia Minor. It used to be part of the Greek Empire, and at this at that point in time, when John was uh, pending the Book of Revelation, it was under the Roman Empire, which most of the Western world at that time was. Ephesus was actually a very very wealthy and prosperous city. That the main reason being that it was a port city. It had a really uh, a large harbor, a very wide harbor. Lots of ships could come in and trade their goods. And any city that had a, a big harbor like that or any type of harbor usually became pretty wealthy because all the money that was changing hands from the merchants coming from different parts of the empire and even the rest of the world, you know, bringing in their of the goods that they were going to trade. So any any city that was on a trade route or was at the part, as part of a trade route would usually be pretty wealthy because they had access to all the money changing hands. And so Ephesus was a, a wealthy city. It was also prominent because it was the uh, main center of worship religiously for pagan worship of the uh, goddess uh, Diana or Artemis. Artemis was her uh, Greek name. Diana was the Roman equivalent, same goddess. She was the goddess of the outdoors, of hunting, the patron goddess of young girls and of pregnant women. So she was an important part of the the, uh, pagan pantheon. And, And Ephesus was her city. So again, Ephesus was, uh, was an important commercial port and it was an important uh, center of pagan worship. The name Ephesus actually means uh, darling or betrothed or beloved. So it has the names, it can be translated in any one of those names and it really uh, denotes spousal affection. And that's going to um, come back to us, the whole spousal idea um, later on as we continue to study 
and break down the, the, the passage. Now, the church at Ephesus was actually a very prominent uh, church in the first century. It was a church that was established by Paul in one of his early missionary journeys. The book of Ephesians was obviously written to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is mentioned prominently in the book of Acts. It's one of Paul's most beloved churches, and it's a church that felt the same way about Paul. They held Paul in extremely high esteem, and Paul had a great deal of affection for them. In fact, Ephesus is probably the only one of the church, seven churches that we would even know about if, if, um, if this, uh, these letters in uh, uh, Revelation 2 and 3 weren't uh, weren't uh, penned. Ephesus you know, was the only church that's actually relatively famous. So it's a pretty prominent church. And in Acts chapter 20, you get a really clear look at how Paul felt about this church. He writes them, basically, he, he, he gives them like a farewell message in Acts chapter 20 because he knows he's, Paul's time is coming to an end. He knows he's going to be arrested soon by the Romans, which means pretty much means a death sentence for him. And he gives some final exhortations to the, the church at Ephesus. He says, I'm, I, you know, I may not ever see you guys again. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, and when I leave, you know, beware of false prophets. He said, I'll come in as ravenous wolves who are going to try to deceive you. So Paul's strong admonition to the Ephesian church was to be strong on doctrine because false prophets and false witnesses are going to come in and they are going to try to lead you astray. They're going to come, they're going to be sheep, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. And you guys need to make sure that you remember all the things that I taught you. And then at the end of that chapter, you can just see the affection they had for Paul as they all, the entire church, all the elders of the church just wept over him. So yeah, again, a lot of affection uh, back and forth. Then when you look at the book of Ephesians, which is, you know, the the other thing that uh, Ephesians is, Ephesus is famous for, in, in addition to having a prominent church there, you have the book of Ephesians, one of the one of the great epistles, like you know, all of them are great, but Ephesians is one of my favorite epistles because Paul just does a, a fantastic job um, with things like the whole armor of God and things like that. But I think one of the things that Ephesus is, is mo Ephesians is most known for is what Paul said about marriage. And this is going to come back to us when, as we break down uh, the the letter, Jesus's letter to Ephesus. But Paul talks a lot about marriage. And in fact, you will find in Ephesians chapter uh, five is his words about marriage. And you will find in, I think, verse 22, the favorite verse of all husbands, wives submit to your husbands. And now this is not because Paul was a, a chauvinist. He wasn't just saying you should... Um, that wives need to just be obedient to their husbands and nothing else. Because actually, if you look at it, if you keep reading, uh, Paul's admonition to husbands is actually even more stringent. He tells that husbands, we are to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? Enough to die for it. So I think um, husbands actually get <laughs> the worst, the short end of the stick on this one. Sure, you have to be so submissive to your husband's wives, but man, we're supposed to be willing to die for our wives. So yeah, don't don't uh, harp on that one too much, guys, because, the, again, our our role in marriage is is even more stringent than the wives. But anyway, Paul talks about the marriage and then he kind of throws a curveball at the end where he 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 trans he transfers from talking about the physical marriage to the actual spiritual significance. And when Paul says that um, he's actually revealing a great mystery, that mystery is that the the relationship between a husband and wife is the same relationship as Christ has to the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And he says it's, it was a mystery. And of course, that, that word mystery doesn't mean the same as our word mystery. When we think of mystery, we think of something that's hidden. But the uh, word translated mystery in Greek is mysterion, which basically means something that was hidden until now and something that's being revealed. So it's almost the opposite of our word mystery. 
Paul is revealing something to the Ephesians church, to the Ephesian church and to Christians in general, that the, again, the relationship between a husband and wife mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. Again, we are the bride of Christ. All right, and with that history out of the way, let's just dive into the passage and start breaking it down. To the angel at the church of Ephesus, the messenger, to the messenger of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So what does this mean? Well, in each one of the letters that we talked about in the last episode, Jesus has a different title that he gives himself, and that title relates to what's going on in that particular church. So the title he gives himself this time is that he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Well, we know what these what these two symbols are because in the previous chapter, in chapter one, Jesus gives a translation. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So Jesus is saying that he holds those messengers in his right hand. They're they're protected. Their right, right hand is the hand of authority, and he walks in the midst of them. So he this is about his relationship with the churches. He's walking in the middle of them, in the midst of them. Now, walking with God, walking with Jesus is a, a sign of fellowship. Remember, Enoch walked with God and, you know, God considered that to be called that called him a righteous man because of that. So anytime someone is walking with God, walking with Jesus, they are in a relationship with him. And so this speaks of, of Jesus's relationship with the church, which we know, of course, is a marriage relationship. OK, verse two, I know your works. And he says this to all the churches. Jesus knows our works. And that's either great or terrifying, depending on what your works are. So I know, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and not become weary. Wow, Jesus gives them a tremendous commendation. Now granted, it's not all positive as we'll find out soon and it's easy to dwell on the negatives of the church at Ephesus, but let's not forget that Jesus gives them a tremendous commendation, one of the one of the best commendations of all the all the seven churches that he knows that that they do not bear evil, that they they test the apostles who who, who say they are apostles and are not and they have patience and they labor and, and they do this for the for the sake of Jesus. They are great on doctrine. Let's not forget that Jesus praises them for being strong on uh, doctrine and knowing the truth. He praises them for it. He thinks it's a great thing. So it would seem here that the church at Ephesus really took Paul's warnings to heart uh, that he gave them in, in Acts chapter 20. And when he told them you know, to, to guard his words, guard the doctrine that he taught them and beware of false prophets, they took this to heart and they are doing a great job at it. And Jesus, again, commends them for it. So that's the good news. Unfortunately, there's bad news. In verse four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Wow. What does that mean? You've left your first love. We can start in a human sense, looking at the word love and looking at the concept of the first love. So what if you ask the average person, what is love? They're going to give you some definition that's centered around feelings and emotions. Uh, love is having a strong affection for someone. Love is having you know benevolent feelings towards someone or de being dedicated to them. It's, it's all really tied to emotion. And that's great, except that that's not really a complete definition because if love is about feelings, then anytime you don't have positive feelings towards the person you claim to love, then by definition, you no longer love them. And how many of us agree with that? How many of us actually live that way? I would say we don't. 
I mean, as much as you love your spouse or your family, you don't always have positive feelings for towards them, especially your family. No one can get on your nerves. No one knows how to annoy you and push your buttons like your family. And I know that when, when my family, when we get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's 50-50. It's 50%, hey, it's great to see you. 50%, you are annoying me so much, I can't stand to be in the same room with you. Now, despite that, I, we don't stop loving each other, even though we annoy each other sometimes. And so if love was just a feeling that I would have to say, I stop loving my family when I'm not happy with them, which of course isn't the case. Or, or I stop loving my wife when she and I have, I have an argument and that doesn't happen. I, you know, we love each other all the time, even if we're not getting along for a moment. So love is not a feeling. And we'll get to the true definition in just a second. But I want to talk about the concept of first love and look at the human definition of that, because it is a bit pertinent, although it's not a, it's not a perfect example. It is something that we'll bring up again in, in, in just a bit. But the first love, if you ask a, a regular person, a normal person, what is a first love? Well, you, you, you'll basically relate that to the first person that you fell in love with, your, your high school sweetheart or your college sweetheart or, or, who, who, or, or when you were first dating your spouse, that first love. And what were you like when you were first in love with someone? Oh, well, that person was just the greatest thing ever. You couldn't stop thinking about them. You couldn't. You, all you wanted to do was be with them. You wanted to talk to them and spend time with them. You couldn't. You wouldn't stop telling people about them. You People would just get tired of you talking about this wonderful person. And they were the handsomest or prettiest person you've ever met. And everything they said was funny. And they're just so brilliant. And they're just so cute. And all these sorts of things. You just drove people nuts with it. But that's how it was. You could not get enough of this person when you were first in love with them. Unfortunately, that didn't last forever. Uh, none of us stay in that lovey-dovey feeling forever. It, it's great for the for a while, but then we all get into a rut, even with the person that we're married to, especially with the person we're married to. Anyone who's married knows that you, you can still passionately love the person that you're, you're married to, but you, you get into a rut. You know, you start to just get into a routine where it's not, you, you, even though you, you want to be with them all the time, sometimes you wouldn't mind a little bit of space to yourself. Sometimes you don't want to see them every minute of every day and you kind of um, embrace the times where you're not all um, all under each other. And then, you know, you have kids and you have your job and you, you again, you're still loving, but that, 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 that um, effusive love just kind of fades and you have to keep working on it. And we'll, we'll see how that relates to the relationship of Ephesus in a bit. But let's look at the biblical definition of love because that's what we're, that's what it's really about this isn't about our human love this is about the the love that we're supposed to have for christ and we need to have the biblical definition and the non-contradictory biblical definition of love is to give without expectation of getting anything in return now i'm not going to go too deep into this because i have a whole section on love i've done uh, blogs and podcasts about love and if you want to really get into depth of, of how we came to that definition, you can just go to that category and click on it and you can read and listen to what we say about love. You'll, you'll, you'll notice that on the podcast, one of the images is a meme of an atheist. And the reason that's there is because I introduced the, the topic of love there based on an argument that I had with an atheist who wanted to talk to me about God's love. And, and interesting, atheists love talking about God. They claim they don't believe in God, but God is their favorite thing to talk about. And this atheist was trying to 
give the, the classic argument against God's love by saying if God was really loving, then why do bad things happen? Blah, blah, blah. It's an easy argument to refute. But most arguments that atheists have are easy to refute because they usually have a very shallow understanding of the Bible, if, or if they have any understanding at all. And if you do have a good understanding of the Bible, then their arguments are, are easy to, to refute. But anyway, that's the reason why there's that atheist meme is there. But the point is, um, you can go there and you can uh, get the full uh, lesson on love. Uh, but briefly, if you want to know the definition of love or, or what love really means biblically, then you should go to the very first mention of the word love in the Bible. And that will be in Genesis, where Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. God says, take your son, Isaac, your only son who you love and sacrifice him. Well, you see here that the first time love is mentioned, it is tied directly to sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving without expectation of getting anything in return. That's what a sacrifice is. You don't expect to get a sacrifice back. It's something that you are giving, not expecting anything back. Abraham, God stopped Abraham you know, from killing Isaac at the last minute, but Abraham didn't have that expectation. In fact, we learn later in the Bible that Abraham figured, okay, I'll, I'll kill him, God. I'll put him in your hands. And you'll have to resurrect him because after all, God, you promised that I would have seed from Isaac that would be a great nation. And if, and if you wanted me to kill him and I, I kill him, hey, it's your problem now. You've got to you've got to resurrect him. So Abraham went into it with no expectations. And that's what love is about. Furthermore, let's look at the most famous verse in the Bible, John 316, where it said, for God so loved the world that he what gave the world a big hug, that he told the world it was really pretty, that he wanted to spend time with the world. No, for God so loved the world that he gave, gave what? His only begotten son. That's, that's a serious thing to give. So that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. Whosoever, that means that God had no expectation that anyone was necessarily going to become a Christian. It didn't say, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and then people better believe in him. No, it said whosoever. So, I left it open. I'm going to do this. I'm going to sacrifice my only son on the cross. And if anybody wants to believe, you're welcome to it. So God sacrificed his his son, his own life, because you know Jesus, God, or Jesus is God. God is Jesus. So he sacrificed the greatest thing he could possibly sacrifice, his own life, with no expectation he would get anything in return. That's what love is. And finally, let's look at the the great chapter on love, uh, Corinthians 13. The the, the so-called love chapter that you hear read at every wedding. It was read at my wedding, you know, even though you speak with the sound of, trim, of, of brass and trembling, blah, blah, blah. I'm not reading it right now. I'm paraphrasing it. I'll have it up on the screen. If you if you have all these great attributes, but you don't have love, then basically you're nothing. Um, and most translations have it, you know, if you, it has the word love there. The only translation that doesn't is the the King James. And I used to think that the King James had the worst translation because it, it had love as the word charity. And I thought that was, that's silly. This is back when I didn't have a good definition of love. And I thought, well, charity, that's not, doesn't seem loving. Charity is, a, is an act. It's not, it's not the emotional high of love. But actually, when I, once I realized what the true definition of love is, giving without expectation of getting anything in return, I realized that, that charity is actually the best translation, that the King James has, has it better. And the rest of the translations, which are mostly paraphrasing, of the King James, they wanted to, to change the wording because, again, they, like me, felt that charity wasn't a good translation, but it actually is because charity is when you give without expectation of getting anything in return. When you get to a charity, you don't expect to give it to get it back. When you have a charitable contribution, when, when if you see like a homeless guy on the street and you give him a dollar, 
you don't expect to see that dollar again. You don't expect him to come back to you 10 years later and say, hey, you know, remember me? I, you gave me a dollar 10 years ago and I've got my life together and I have a good job now and I, I'm doing great. Here's that dollar back. Of course not. You don't expect that. You're giving without expectation of getting anything in return. That's what charity is. That's what love is. And those are the things that Ephesus lacked. That's that's those are the things that they left. What is our main what is our love? What is our, our first love? Again, again, not our human first love, but what is our first love, or better translated, what is our primary love? As a Christian, your primary love is Jesus. That's what we should love first. And they left that first love of Jesus. But how do you show love for Jesus? Look, Jesus is very clear. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me. And what is the chief commandment? It is the, the Shema in, in, from the Old Testament. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. How do you, how do you love God primarily? How do you love Jesus first? What can you give of him that you can't get back in return? I would dare say it's your time. Time is the to use our, our current a current popular word. Time is is the only unsustainable commodity that we have. Anything else you can give back, you can get money. If you give money, you can always get money back. You can always make more money. You if you if your house burns down, you can get insurance. You can always get another house. If you lose your car, if your car is total, you can get another car. You can't get time back. Every second that passes is a second you're never going to give back. So the one thing we can give to Jesus that we can never get back is our time, our devotion, our worship. That's what we are supposed to give primarily to Jesus. And the effect of that is that we'll also give to others that if you love Jesus primarily, you will then love others. And that's where things ended up with Ephesus. They didn't have the cause or the effects of love. The, the cause of love is, again, loving Jesus um, primarily and spending time with him. And the effect is loving others and having that in love feeling, that effusive feeling. They didn't have either one of those things. They left those things behind. And we see examples of that in our personal lives and, and in our church lives. I, I mentioned in the last episode that I have the same struggles that Ephesus does. I am strong on doctrine. Doctrine is my thing. I study it all the time just to, to make sure that what I am learning and teaching is true and that I'm not being taken in by any of the false teachings and there are plenty of them out there. And again, Jesus commends that and it's a good thing and it's something that we all should be doing as Christians is, is knowing the real doctrine. In fact, a brief story. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, we took our eighth grade trip. You know, we, we were last year in junior high going to high school. We took our, our eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C. And it was great. We had a fun time. We, you know, we saw the Capitol. We saw the White House. We went to the Smithsonian. But one place we also went was the U.S. Mint, where they mint our money. And we met with one of the people who worked there. And his job was uh, he was anti-counterfeit person. It's, it was his job to make sure that there was no counterfeit money circulating the system. And he had to suss out the counterfeit money. And we asked him how he did it. And he told us that most people would think that you study the counterfeit money. Because, you see, the thing is, no matter how hard people try to counterfeit money, there's always a flaw. There's always something that's a little bit off about it. And there are many different ways of, of counterfeiting money. And sometimes the flaws are difficult to detect. Sometimes they're pretty obvious. But there was no way he could he could study every single type of counterfeit, of, of counterfeiting operation. Plus, they're evolving all the time. There are new people coming up with ways to counterfeit all the time. So he it would be impossible for him to study all the fake money. What he did instead, he said, I study real money. I make sure that I am an expert 
on how real money looks. And if I know how real money looks, then anytime a counterfeit bill comes across, no matter who the counterfeiter is, I will know that it's off because it doesn't look like the real thing. And that's what we should do as Christians. We should be experts on doctrine. We don't, we don't have the, the time or the need to study every false belief that's out there. There are many of them. There's too many for us to study. We spend all our time doing that. But if we are experts on the true word of God, then anytime something comes along that differs, either greatly or slightly from the word of God, we'll know it because we'll be so familiar with the true word. And that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what I do. However, I admit that I don't spend as much devotional time as I should. And that's something I need to constantly work on. And there are churches that are very strong on doctrine, but you will find that these churches don't tend to last long if they don't have love. And the reason being is that when you are strong on doctrine and everyone in your church has a strong doctrinal position, well, the problem is that none of us are perfect in our doctrine. So some people are going to come along and believe doctrine that's a little bit different. It may still be good doctrine, but they'll have a difference of opinion. And those are the things that split churches up. The main reason that churches break up is because a certain group in the church starts believing a different type of doctrine. And they get into a doctrinal discussion. It could even be a minor discussion that just balloons into something tremendous. And they the church splits up because there's no love there. If there was love, then there would be so much in common that you would still be able to tolerate each other, even if you had difference of opinion. I mean, I have differences of opinion with lots of my fellow Christians, good friends of mine. In fact, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine a few weeks ago about politics in, in the church. And he believes that God, God ordains everyone who's in office. Everyone who is a president or a congressman is there because God placed them in office. He believes a chapter in Romans that says that God, um, you know, puts that we're supposed to you know, respect our political figures because God puts them there and that God raises up kings and so forth. I disagree. I believe that God can and does raise up kings, but it doesn't mean he's responsible for every single leader we have, because if that was the case, then God was, God was responsible for Hitler. I don't think that God voluntarily said, hey, I think I'll have this evil guy come up and rule Germany. And also it takes away our free will. If if if, if God is going to decide who our president is, no matter what we say, then what's the point in Christians even voting? So I, I we disagree on that point, but we're still friends because we because we still love each other and we still are, we still have the same love basis, and that basis is the true gospel of which we there is no dispute, which is that Jesus died according to the scripture and rose again on the third day according to the scripture. That he and I are in lockstep on. We totally agree about that. That means that any other theories we have are never going to take away from the fact that we're both true Christians, and so we can agree to disagree and not break up our friendship because we have that love and I have that respect for him. However, if you are in a church that is all doctrine and no love, when those when those um, those disagreements come up, then church is going to break up. And finally, if you don't have the cause that true the the true cause of worshiping Jesus and giving Him your time, then you're not going to have any of the effects. And one of those effects is that in love feeling you get. Now, again, love is not a feeling. We already talked about that. But an effect of love is that effusive feeling, that feeling you had when you first became a Christian. You remember what that was like when you first were saved and you couldn't stop talking about Jesus and all you thought about was Jesus and you couldn't wait to read the Bible every day and tell other people about him. In fact, statistics show that most people who have been evangelized, most people who have been led to Christ, have been led to Christ by someone who has been a Christian for five years or less. Why? Because young Christians are the ones who are always talking about Jesus and they're the ones out there evangelizing. 
There'll be Christians who've been in Christians who've been Christians for a while, seven, eight, 10, 12, 20 years. Well, we get into that same rut where that in love feeling we had, it kind of fades and we just get into the routine of going to church and doing our Bible study, saying our prayers and our prayers don't have fire in them anymore. And our Bible study is more of an obligation than a love. But that's you know, we, we get into that, that same area that Ephesus does. And that's something we all need to guard against. We need to know doctrine, but we also need to not forget our primary love. Okay, so we looked at the historic point. We looked at the personal and the ecumenical, the church point of view. Let's also look at the the fourth level, which you talked about in the last episode. The fourth level is the prophetic episode, level, which is the idea that these seven churches outline church history in advance. So Ephesus being the first church would obviously be the the first church age, and that would we call that the apostolic church. So Ephesus represents the apostolic church, the first uh, two three centuries of Christianity, and it makes sense that this church would be strong on doctrine because. These churches were either had direct interaction with the apostles or were two or three generations removed from the apostles and their writings. So they had very, very, very strong doctrine and false doctrine was not found in, in these in these early churches. And you look at even after, you know, the first century when most of the apostles were, were martyred, you still have p- people like Polycarp. You have the, the great church fathers, Augustine and, and Origen and, and all those folks who did tremendous work. All, most of our Christian creeds are, are doctrinally based on the works of these great church fathers. And they did a lot of great things. However, there were some areas that, that they fell short. And I would say that those areas are in love. You will not find a whole lot of early church fathers really expounding on the loving Jesus. Knowing, they were great knowing about Jesus and knowing about doctrine and making sure that the doctrine was right. But they didn't do a lot of, um, on the subject of love. And, and they fell short in many ways. And one example is Augustine. Again, one of the great church fathers who did a lot of great work. However, Augustine was very anti-Semitic. He had no love for Jews. And because he was so revered, his his doctrine, all of his doctrine, including his anti-Semitism, followed him into history. When you look at Martin Luther, who in the, the 15th, 14th and 15th century, during the, the time of the Reformation, he was greatly influenced by Augustine. And though uh, Martin Luther did a lot of great things for Christianity with the Reformation, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the church in Sardis. He also maintained August, Augustine's uh, anti-Semitism. And because he was German and the Lutheran church was German, that anti-Semitism stayed in the Lutheran church all the way into the 1930s when the time of Hitler. One of the reasons why people sometimes ask, how did the, the Christian church in Germany, why did they not speak out against what Hitler was doing? Well, one of the reasons is that they maintained a lot of that old anti-Semitism. There's actually a book called From, Al- From Augustine to Auschwitz, which shows a history of how Augustine's anti-Semitism was, again, one of the reasons why the the Holocaust went on unabated and, and, and unchallenged by the so-called Christian church in Germany. That's that, that's not love. The, the Jews, no matter what you think of what Jews have done in in, in the in the Old Testament and some of the disobedience things that some of the issues they have with disobedience they're still God's chosen people and Jesus was still a, a an ethnic Jew and that lovelessness is again was at one of the root causes of the Holocaust and why it was able to go on unabated okay let's keep going uh, we're getting a little short on time I need to finish of the passage okay so what were the consequences of of, of what um, of this loveless church. So verse five, 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, what does that mean? He says, repent and do the, remember where you were fallen and repent and do the first works. What are the first works? The first works are those, again, we're going back to how you, how they first were when they when they became Christians. What was the first things you were doing when you became Christians? Well, you were talking about Jesus. You were loving Jesus and you were loving others. You need to get back to that first place. That, that first that, that first primary love that you initially had. You need to have that same fervor, that same vigor, that same desire to spend time with Christ, to worship him, and to let that, that let those causes come out in the effects to others. Just taking it back to our, our marriage um, relationship. And again, now you understand why Jesus chose Ephesus um, to give this message about doctrine versus love. Jesus did not pick these churches arbitrarily. He preached them because they preached to these churches and, and, and addressed these churches because the message to them resonated on so many levels. That's why Ephesus is the church that was all about marriage when, um, when, when Paul was writing to them. When Jesus talks about his title of, of walking among in the midst of the lampstand, it's about the relationship with the church. So this is Ephesus and this letter is really about the relationship, that marital relationship that, that Christ should ha has with the church. So we think about your own marriage. And what do you do when that first glow fades? Well, you either get divorced or you work on your marriage. How do you work on it? By remembering those first things. You know, when my wife and I get into a rut and, you know, it just becomes the day-to-day -day thing of dealing with our kids and dealing with our jobs and paying bills and taking care of the house. And we, we forget about that excitement that we once had. Well, we have to be intentional. We have to go on date nights and, and, and go back to, to that feeling we first had when we were, when we were dating and we were just couldn't get enough of each other. So you have to be intentional about that. So if you're like me, and you are and you're strong on doctrine but you don't spend enough devotional time with Jesus then you need to be intentional about it and remember what it was like when you first became a Christian when you first were on fire for Jesus we have to go back to that and that's what Jesus advocates to the the um, the Ephesian church so what are the consequences that if they don't do it it says Jesus says I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place now that does not mean they're going to lose their salvation Okay, Jesus is not going to take your salvation from you. I don't want to get into a whole Calvinism versus Arminianism um, discussion. We, we maybe talk about that a, a, a bit later, but this is not about losing your salvation. Remember, the lampstands are the physical churches. And when he says you, he will remove your lampstand from its place, it means that they will lose their status as a church. Ephesus will unless they repent. How do they do? Well, let's look at the, at the fate of Ephesus and the Ephesian church. Remember, I said earlier that Ephesus was had was a great city because they had that big wide port, that huge harbor where all the ships were coming in. Now that it was a wide port, but it was also a kind of shallow. At the time during the first century, it was still deep enough for ships to come in and out, but it was it was more shallow than most harbors. Well, what happens is when the tide would come in, you know, the tide comes in and out, the water ri water level rises and falls. But when that tide would come in, when that new water would rush in, it would bring, you know, silt and a little dirt and debris with it. And when the tide would come out and the water would wash out, well, it would leave a little bit of that silt behind. Well, over the years and decades and centuries, that silt kept building up higher and higher until the port at Ephesus became too shallow for large ships to, to, to get all the way into to dock. So the ships would only be able to come in a certain ways and then they'd have to put their goods on the smaller uh, boats and, and, and bring them into Ephesus. But again, as the years and decades and centuries went on, the, the, um, the silt built up so high 
that the port basically stopped being functional as a port. It was too shallow for any boat to come into the port became too so filled in with dirt. It, it was no longer a port. And when that happened, well, the ships started going elsewhere to other cities that had harbors and Ephesus basically declined and fell as a city. There was without the, the harbor there, there was no reason for anyone to be in Ephesus. They lost all their wealth and Ephesus is no longer a city. Ephesus no longer exists to this day. So it looks like the church at Ephesus never got the act together because the city is gone. And of course, this, the church at Ephesus is also gone. Their lampstand was physically removed from its place, just as Jesus promised it would be if they didn't get their act together, which apparently they didn't. Sobering. All right, let's keep going. Um, Jesus, Jesus had actually one more um, commendation for them. Verse six, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. All right, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, it's kind of a mystery because in there's no historic people who have the proper name of Nicolaitan. People, uh, scholars have studied it for years. There's never, been, there's never been a group called Nicolaitans, which means that Nicolaitan is not a proper name. It is a description. Now, there are some scholars who believe that Jesus is referring to um, the so-called Gnostics. The Gnostics were a pagan group in the first through third century was their prominence. They were pagans. They were not Christians, but they... Uh, they clothed themselves in Christianity. They called themselves Christians, but again, they were not. They were pagans. They were heretics. But they were trying to clothe their paganistic beliefs in Christianity. And they had some odd beliefs. They didn't believe in the physical world. They believed that everything physical was sin. So they didn't believe that Jesus actually came in flesh as a physical person, that he was actually a spirit who looked like a person. So I guess he was basically a hologram or something. And they pinned these so-called Gnostic Gospels Gospels that were written in the name of disciples and apostles who had died years earlier. There, there's a Gospel of Thomas, there's a Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, all written in the second and third century, over a hundred years after the actual people died. There's even a Gospel of Judas, which we know was ridiculous because Judas died. Well, he would commit suicide shortly after he betrayed Jesus. When did he have time to write a gospel? These are all fake gospels. They were, they were, um, passed off as hidden gospels that the, the church didn't want people to see because this knowledge would upset the balance of the church. And that's not true. They, they accused the Catholic church of hiding these so-called lost gospels because they didn't agree with Catholicism. Now you can say a lot of things about Catholicism and I can, will, and do. However, one thing you cannot accuse them of is falsely hiding these uh, gospels because they were true and they were trying to hide them. No, these, these, these Gnostic gospels are complete forgeries they are completely heretical. Um, the only people who even take them seriously are folks who are intentionally trying to discredit Christians, like, for example, Dan Brown. If you've had the misfortune of reading any of his books or seeing his terrible movies like The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, you will see that he uses these so-called Gnostic Gospels, um, again, to basically disparage the church. And because some of these Gospels, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, states that Jesus was in love with Mary Magdalene and he married her and he didn't really die on the cross, but he just fainted from, from the pain and he walked out of the tomb somehow past the Roman soldiers and he, he and Mary Magdalene went on to have a bunch of kids who became the royalty of Europe, which is so stupid. It's, it's barely worth mentioning, but the point is that's what the Gnostics are all about. So and some people believe again that the Nicolaitans were the Gnostics. I don't know. The only thing I, I know is that if you look at the description of the word, you have to break it down to its two component parts. Nicolaitans, it comes from two words. Nikeo, 
which the Greek word which means to rule or to lord over, and the laity. And we use that word today, actually. Uh, laity means the people. We use like when you say a layman or a laywoman, a layperson. It means basically average people. So Nicolaitan means those who rule over the people. And in the sense of the church, this would mean there were these Nicolaitans were a small group who believed that they should lord over the church. They should set the rules for the church. They should be the head of the church, which Jesus hated because Jesus is the head of the church. We get our doctrine, our marching orders from Jesus, not from any man who call man or woman who calls himself a church leader. And the church at Ephesus rejected this idea because all Christians are equal. All of us, whether you are a, a rank and file member or of a church or a deacon or an apostle or a pastor, you are all equal in the eyes of God. No one is better than the other. But the Nicolaitans didn't believe. They believed that certain Christians were better than others and should be in leadership positions and should dictate terms to the church. Jesus hated this. The Ephesian church hated it. What you're going to find in a, a couple uh, broadcasts from now, when, it, when we get to the church at Pergamum, they actually embraced the um, idea of the Nicola the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and to a great degree, our modern church still does embrace the idea of the Nicolaitans. But Jesus doesn't like it, and we'll, we'll talk about that more when, uh, a couple of weeks from now when we get to the church at Pergamum. Okay, so let's wrap it up. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is how Jesus ends all of the of the letters. To him, here's a promise of the overcomer. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So I think what's going on here, when he says to eat of the tree of life, we're, we're, he's basically taking us back to Eden. What were we like in Eden? What was man like in Eden? Eating from the tree of life, obviously eternal life, which is promised to all Christians. But being in paradise, what was God's relationship to Adam and Eve? He walked with them. He walked with Adam and Eve at the cool of the day and they had those conversations and they had that relationship. So what he's basically saying, is, if you overcome this, you will have relationship with me again, like we did in Eden, where where you just walked and talked with God until obviously the, the serpent or the, or the Nakash attempted uh, Eve and, and subsequently Adam and they fell. So Jesus basically promised, promising them that they will, he will restore that Edenic relationship where we walk with God, just as again, going back to the first verse of chapter two, where Jesus gives himself the title of he who walks him in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So he begins and ends this letter talking about his relationship, his fellowship with the church that he wants to have ultimately. And that will be the reward of those who overcome the, the issues that the church at Ephesus had. So the bottom line is stay strong in doctrine, know the true scriptures so that none of the counterfeits will ever be able to sway you. And at the same time, Spend devotional time with Jesus, worship Jesus, remember your first love, and then that effects will be you will love others, you will be charitable to others, and you will still you will be on fire for Jesus, and you will have that first love feeling as well as the first love actions. All right, so that's going to wrap things up. I'm yeah, I'm about 12 minutes over my half an hour mark. So I appreciate it. Thank you for listening so much uh, and for watching. I for watching. I appreciate it very much. Uh, please uh, subscribe if you, to this to the podcast to the uh, podcast. Right, subscribe to the episode here on YouTube. Um, please give it a like if you enjoyed this. Please give me that thumbs up like. I appreciate it. It'll help spread the word. Um, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and when you subscribe, hit that little bell so you get notifications. And um, also subscribe via Faith by Reason. 
faithbyreason.net. You can just put your email into that right navigation bar. And again, you will be notified when new episodes are available. You can uh, follow me on uh, Twitter and on Facebook. And please uh, give me your comments. I'd love to hear them in either on YouTube or on Facebook or on the website. And we will talk again next week when we explore the letter to the Church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. And we will start to understand what it means to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. And we will explore what it means to be persecuted, even if you're in a Western world where we aren't suffering physical persecution, there is still persecution that we endure. And we will explore that. And we will look at this Church of Smyrna, which is one of the two churches about which Jesus has nothing negative to say. So we really want to know what they're all about. So thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you again next week.